Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Richard talks about his presentation at the Society of Biblical Literature Gathering in San Diego, where he explored the various ways in which the study of language and poetry can enhance our understanding of the biblical text. The conversation sheds light on the broader goal of this podcast series to hear, read, and reflect on the content of the Bible as literature. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 46 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So this past week, you traveled to the Society of Biblical Literature meeting in San Diego, California. I have to say that is a heck of a time for starving, suffering biblical scholars to meet in the middle of the November freeze in Minnesota. So I'm sure all of you lived up to the high standard of your calling as biblical scholars. Yeah, we appreciated the ability to serve the cause in San Diego. (laughs) Well, you can take some comfort in knowing that the Bible is from the Levant, from the Fertile Crescent. So they didn't have to deal with snow. So why should you guys? There you go. So tell us about your trip. Tell us about the meeting. Tell us about the exciting things that are happening. The meeting is a joint meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature and the American Academy of Religion. All together, it's about 8,000 scholars. So it's a scholarly organization, mostly professors at various institutions. It's a U.S.-based meeting, but because it's the largest of its kind, people come from all over the world. I ran into some gentlemen from Sudan when I was there. I mean, there are people from all over the world. So they come together. It's for four days over the weekend before Thanksgiving. That's how it always works. And it's in a different city every year in the U.S. There's hundreds of sessions about every conceivable topic about the Bible, the formation of Isaiah, Biblical Hebrew poetry, Greek linguistics, the book of Acts, the Pauline epistles, anything you can conceive of, and that's just on the biblical side. On the American Academy of Religion, you have every religion and different ways of viewing religion, religion and society, and all sorts of things. So really a lot of diversity, a lot of interesting ideas that are happening. I have a friend who is in charge of the biblical Hebrew poetry section. And they were doing a section where they were focusing on linguistics, and so they wanted someone with a linguistics background to respond. So what you do is you get the papers in advance that the scholars are going to read, and then you write up a short response. I had about 10 minutes to give a response, at which time you talk about how the papers fit into a larger context. So I was looking really at the way that linguistics can help our understanding of poetry. Now, one thing I should probably mention to listeners is that the way I see linguistics is a bit different than how a lot of people see it within the field of biblical studies. And so that was an interesting discussion in itself when I was there. For the biblical linguist, what you're doing is you're trying to understand the language of the Bible better 
so that you can understand the text better. Linguistics in its broadest sense, beyond what is just happening in biblical studies, is looking at what language itself is and does. What are the parameters that affect every single language in the world? What is human about language? How does language work in the human brain in a concept called universal grammar? What is the grammar so to speak, that underlies all languages. What are things that languages are allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do, what categories languages recognize, what ones they don't recognize. And so the two terms are used a bit differently in biblical studies because there's a bit of confusion between those two. So that's one of the things I tried to address when I talked to my colleagues, because me personally, I come from the latter school. I studied linguistics before I started studying the Bible. And so I looked at it purely from a neurological, sociological, anthropological framework nothing to do with biblical studies. But what I found is that when you understand how language works in general, you can understand how Hebrew works specifically or how Greek works specifically. And in the section we were looking at biblical Hebrew poetry, which is very interesting because poetry, as we have in English, breaks a lot of the normal grammar rules. So the example that I used is in English we say, what light through yonder window breaks as Shakespeare said. But why don't we just say, what light breaks through yonder window? Because we have this thing called iams, where the rhythm goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so, what light through yonder window breaks. So it sounds nice. If you say, what light breaks through yonder window, it breaks the pattern. Well, it's funny because I was just going to say, because it sounds better. That's a tricky way to answer because it may sound better because I've been trained to appreciate the sound of Shakespearean English. But there's a mechanism at work in Shakespearean English is what you're saying in terms yeah. of how the, the rhythm, the pattern, and structure and so forth. Exactly. So what I learned about poetry itself is that, and I did some research too at Somali poetry, classical Chinese poetry, what human beings like to do is they like to take these sound constraints and put it on language artificially and then work out language. Who says that language is supposed to go ba dump ba dump ba dump ba dump ba dump? Only poets, because when I speak, I don't use iams. I just speak, right? right? And what then happens, once you force language to fit in this sound pattern, a phonological pattern, then the syntax starts getting a little loose and you start to be able to move a word from what should be the third position to the end of the sentence. But then at the same time, you can't just move any old word. You can't say, what breaks through yonder window light? It fits the pattern, but it just sounds like nonsense, right? right? I said to my colleagues, okay, so we know that there's some kind of phonological constraint on Hebrew poetry, although Hebraists have a tough time defining exactly what that is because it doesn't fit in the way that you would like with English or Greek poetry. But we know that the syntax does change. So what rules can you break and what rules can't you break in the language in order to understand and create poetry? And there is a specific reason we need to look into this because, for example, a lot of times when we're looking very carefully at the language of the Bible, we notice when things are out of order or if there's a word at the end of the sentence we would expect earlier in the sentence, we say, oh, well, maybe there's extra emphasis placed on this word. And if the author is emphasizing this word, then maybe this is a more important theme than we realized before. But once you understand how poetry universally works, then you say, well, maybe he just put it there because he needed an extra syllable there. Oh. And it's funny because I think about my father with his, you know, from Egypt, his background in Arabic and so forth. I, I think of him all these years making fun of English poetry 
which is unfair because English poetry is different than Semitic poetry. But his premise for ridiculing modern poetry is that there's no intelligence in the structure of the language. People write poetry and they wax philosophical about its deep meaning and ambiguity, but it doesn't flow and have the same kind of mechanical structure that Shakespearean English might, but certainly Hebraic poetry does, Arabic poetry does. I mean, you have lengthy, lengthy poems in Arabic where every sentence has the same cadence for several pages. Etc. The whole Odyssey is written with these kinds of phonological constraints. Right, and I think there's a mechanical ingenuity inherent with that type of writing that is... I think often lacking in modern poetry. It doesn't mean that modern poetry is deficient, it's something different. But I think that's what my father is talking about when he reacts to what he hears. I was doing some research on blank verse, which is the technical term for poetry without rhythm. And in looking at it, I saw discussions among poets, among experts of this genre, talking about are there phonological constraints in the language, which I find very interesting. Even in a genre that's known for not having this kind of rhythm or meter or, or rhyme, people are looking to see, is there actually something going on? <laughs> so there is this need that people have for this kind of writing. So I think it's interesting when you look at, for example, Judges 4 and 5, I think is the best example, because Judges 4 and 5 are about Deborah and Barak and Yael and the war that they were involved in. The exact same story of the exact same battle, but one is in prose and the other one is in poetry. And I think if someone wants to get the feeling of what is poetry supposed to convey that prose can't, and what can prose convey that poetry can't, I think looking at those two chapters is really helpful because the way that repetition and sound is used in poetry is very different than in prose. Prose is able to give a lot more details and kind of fill in a picture. But poetry fills in a picture in a different way by evoking certain things by sounds. That's what poetry really does. Poetry works with sound. Which is why it's so important in the tradition that scripture is read aloud so that it falls on your ear. And obviously hearing the gospel read in the original Greek or hearing the prophets in Hebrew gives you access to these emphases that you're touching on with the poetic mechanism, mm -hmm. you know. Well, and for example, the thing I love is if you listen to the liturgy of the healing of the sick that we do on Holy Wednesday, when you hear it in Greek and you realize that eleos and elion, mercy and oil, sound very similar, you know that when the mention of oil comes up in this liturgical setting, to the Greek ear, it's going to make a connection with mercy. And only because of that sound connection can you do that. Now, you could also give a sermon where you say, well, you know, oil is a symbol of mercy. So let's talk about oil, but everyone is going to know that this is also mercy. And you can give a sermon on this. But it definitely evokes something different than if you're going to be hearing it in poetry. Absolutely. Because the sound evokes something. So that's what I found very interesting. And then also understanding what are the constraints that the Hebrew authors have to function within, the rules that they just can't break without sounding like nonsense, right? And it's amazing, after studying Hebrew for already now thousands of years, we're still trying to come to terms with some of these kind of basic 
uh, um, rules of how the language works. Well, that's true of anything that we study, right? It's true of the English language. There's still mysteries about how English works and its oddities. But here's my question. Very often at these academic gatherings, people delight in these questions. How does poetry work? What is the mechanism of poetry in this particular text? And they delight in these details and these facts, but people are often shy about drawing conclusions. And of course, I'm very interested in understanding how your discussion of these poetic mechanisms informed your reading of those specific texts. What conclusions can you draw or what conclusions or ideas does the text posit in your mind when you allow yourself to hear it this way? Now, you mentioned that you had done a specific study of Judges 4 and 5. What did you learn by taking this approach to language and mm -hmm. dealing with those texts? Well, the question you're asking is an important one because a lot of times people say, well, these scholars work on such obscure topics and the usefulness is not clear. There's two things going on in academia I think are important before I get to your question. First thing is that in order to come to new understanding, you have to go out in those places where the payoff is not necessarily clear or immediate. You have to go into the unexplored areas. Now sometimes you go into unexplored areas and you run into a dead end. That's just how it goes. But if you didn't take that dead end path, you would have wondered if something were there to be discovered. And so as an academic, I always have to be ready to go and discover new things, even if the payoff is not clear. I have to take the risk that what I'm doing is in the end going to be fruitless. I have to understand that as a risk of being an academic. Well, that's the risk that you take in life, frankly. Exactly. And people who aren't willing to take that risk end up fruitless, but that's another discussion right. for another day. Now, another thing that can happen in academia is that these are professional writers and they're on deadlines constantly. And so their job is to keep writing. So sometimes it's a lengthy description of a dead end, which can be tedious sometimes. But because the person needs to keep writing, they stay trapped in this dead end. So that can be a problem. Now, so I just want to state that as how academia in general works in any field. People always make fun of, oh, really, the NSA is funding this. Oh, really, the NEA is funding that. How is this possible? That's just ridiculous. You have to study the ridiculous because everything good started out as an idea that was ridiculous. So you have to spend your time in those ridiculous areas. Now, going back to your question, how is this useful? I think it's really helpful to see the description of the battle that we see in Judges 4 and 5 because there are two ways of looking at the same event. And one is very descriptive and another one is very poetic. And when you put the two together, you actually have a fuller knowledge of what's going on. It's one thing to read a story about the War of 1812. It's another thing to read the text of the Star-Spangled Banner. They both are depicting the same events, but one is from a very broad point of view trying to bring in as many facts and tell a story. The other one is taking one very narrow point of view. Francis Scott Key was, I believe, a prisoner on a ship when he wrote this. He had been imprisoned by the British and that sort of thing. And how does he then, how does he use this image in a broader way? I've been doing work in Hosea and looking at Hosea 1. Hosea 1 is all in some kind of poetic form and it's using imagery and it's using metaphor where the children born of the harlot represent something else and it makes a very fleeting reference to the blood spilt in Jezreel, the field of Jezreel. Well if you look in 2nd Kings at what happens in that 
scene when Jehu comes and attacks and ends up decimating the house of Ahaz. They're both depicting the same scene, but Hosea is fitting it into a broader context of abuse of power and how different people abuse power. Whereas if you're just reading 2 Kings, you can easily miss things. So going back to Judges 4 and 5, when you read the depiction in Judges 4 of prose of what happened in that battle, in Judges 5, you read a poetic depiction. And the poetic depiction is about how the servant woman managed to win the war by single-handedly defeating the head of the opposing army. And that's Yael. And that's what she does, offering him a bowl of milk and then ramming the pent peg through his head. And that's how she manages to kill him. It's a very delightful. It's a delightful, delightfully gruesome yeah. passage out of the Bible. So you can say like, oh, and they won on that day. But when you say this beautifully constructed story about this woman who outsmarted the head of the army and managed to kill him as a result, it's a totally different story, even though it's the same story. So what I learned from looking at poetry is that the way that poetry is able to evoke different things because of its phonological constraints, it's able to tell a story in a different way and therefore allow us to see a story in a new way. So I think that poetry has a lot to offer in this. And you know the ancients knew this too in the late antique period. A lot of times they were exegeting scripture through poetry because evoking the stories of scripture through poetry gives you a different kind of interpretation than you would just get in a commentary. And that's very difficult for us to see because we don't do that anymore. All of our troparia are now set. We don't write new stihira. They're all done. They're all, and, they all and, have been written. And, and, and when people attempt to write new texts, they are sorely lacking in depth and complexity. They rely on formula gleaned from poor translations. They lack nuance, and they certainly lack the depth of understanding of scripture that the earlier writers would have had, irrespective of the school that they were operating within. Mm -hmm. They had familiarity with the primary data. We don't. Right. So our modern liturgical poetry across all denominations I think is starving of I depth. Think, and I think it is too because we lack an understanding of the original language and the context. I mean, Romanos the Melodist, for example, one of the most famous poets, he was immersed in the world of poetry in his time. He was a professional poet. That's how he made his living. World class. World class, yes. exactly. And so he translated the ideas of the Bible into poetry, but the language of the Bible was his, and the language he was writing in was his, and to the extent that he was an expert in his own language, the poetry of his own language. This kind of expertise is lacking. So I think that people who are really trying to get to the bottom of how Hebrew poetry works, talking to these guys and seeing their writing, I don't think they're going to be writing poetry about the Bible. But I think that understanding that sensibility about the Bible is important because we're trying to understand the Bible as literature. That's the name of our podcast. That's what you and I are trying to do, Father. And so I was blessed that I had the opportunity to spend several weeks before going to SBL of really digging in and saying, what is poetry? What does poetry do? Why have poetry in the Bible? Look, we have ton more poetry in the Hebrew Bible than we do in the New Testament. Why is that? Why did the New Testament writers use more poetry? That's weird. If you look at the grand scheme of things, look at how much of the Old Testament is poetry compared to the New Testament. Well, but you also have to keep in mind that the New Testament is 
a frontal assault on Hellenized Roman culture. It's addressing a different historical context with the same tradition, so it's going to be written in a different way. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would point out, too, is that if you take the Bible in totality, the New Testament is relatively insignificant given the number of words right. committed to stone or mm -hmm. to parchment. Right. So, you know, uh, I, I would say that in totality as a canonical tradition, the way it tips the scale in favor of poetry as a mechanism of communication. Mm -hmm. Because remember, the New Testament is simply an invitation to get the Gentiles to read the Older Testament. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's dismissing the importance of this way of conveying meaning at all. Right. I just think it's, it's a question of how you're trying to hook the reader. Exactly. How are you going to hook the reader? And this is what I think academia really has to offer, is asking this question, why is this the case? Did anybody notice this? Did anybody? Now, one thing, as you're saying this, Father, I'm thinking about one of the most magnificent pieces of poetry in the New Testament, which is the Magnificat. Correct. That's, I was thinking about that. The, was some, yeah, exactly. And what's interesting is that particular piece of poetry, very clear poetry from the New Testament, is modeled after the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Right. Now, that's what I find fascinating is that you take image and sound from the Old Testament and bring it into the New Testament. And all of a sudden, one evokes the other so clearly, and now you have a woman who is praising an angel and is praising God in the audience of this angel and juxtaposing it with this praise of God in Shiloh by Hannah. And I find that fascinating then when you take those and then you juxtapose them. And so the authors of the Bible are, I believe, seeing this connection or Clearly. at least even if they aren't let's say that they're not even when we read them it's almost impossible to read one without the other one being evoked in your mind but see here's the power of literature whether the writers are under the control of the text in other words whether the author of luke is being manipulated by the song of hannah mm -hmm. or if that author is actually co-opting or applying the song of hannah it really doesn't matter because whether they co-opt or they are controlled by, it's the text that has total control over the story itself. Because those connections are living connections either way. That's the key for, I think, the Antiochian school of biblical exegesis. It's important to study these connections and why and who and what and so forth, but the, at the end of the day, the connections are real when you take this as a totality, as a canonical totality, and you have to deal with the connections you know, and it's such a powerful tradition that in some ways even the authors are controlled. I think very clearly the authors of the New Testament are controlled by the authors of the Older Testament. And that brings up a really good point too, Father, because I think that one of the ways that I differ a lot from many of my colleagues at the Society of Biblical Literature is that when I look at the Bible as literature, I look at it as a book where one part does control the other part. Many of my colleagues are looking at the original action of writing the text and what happened and how did that come to be. And that's part that I'm less interested in than many of my colleagues. Sometimes it can be helpful, but again, I find that that path is less fruitful than other paths. God bless them for continuing to study that and to look to see what fruit they might find on that path. But what I prefer is we call it in the technical term is looking at the final form of the Bible. How is the yeah. Bible in its final form presented to us and what kind of things do we notice within the network of the Bible as we have it as opposed to what was happening to Hosea when he wrote his book. Was he looking at these other texts? 
Was the author of Luke reading the Song of Hannah? Was it open on his desk as he was writing? Was it in his memory? Was it a vague understanding or was it a coincidence? Those things I'm less interested in than saying in the Bible that we have, the Magnificat looks a lot like the Song of Hannah. But that's how providence functions in scripture. The philosophical question why is ultimately completely irrelevant in scripture because now you have a what. And so what are you going to do about the what that's sitting in front of you? Exactly. That's how you deal with the, the, fi the final form, as you say. Anyways, right. great, great conversation, Dr. Benton. Thanks so much for sharing your experience at SBL with us. Look forward to hearing where all of you suffering exegetes will be meeting next year. Atlanta. My vote will be for Siberia, <laughs> but apparently that won't count. So anyways, have a great week. Take care. All right. Care. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.